Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hi Simon. And today I'm delighted to say that we have two special guests joining us. Firstly, we have scholar and critic Louis Menand, whose career achievements we could probably dedicate a separate podcast to. But I will just say that as well as being a professor of English at Harvard University, a staff writer at The New Yorker, and receiving the National Humanities Medal from President Obama in 2015, he also won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for History for the Metaphysical Club, and his new book, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War, is the main subject of today's show. Louis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm delighted to say that we also have a returning guest for today's show, so we obviously weren't too awful to her last time. Alex Safe Cummings is a historian of law, technology, and American political culture at Georgia State University, and her work includes Democracy of Sound, Music, Piracy, and the Remaking of American Copyright in the 20th Century, released in 2013, and Brain Magnet, Research Triangle Park and the Idea of the Idea Economy, released last year in 2020. Alex, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Louis, can you start us off by introducing your book to our audience and tell us why you decided to write it? The book is called The Free World, and it's cultural history of the period from the end of the Second World War, 1945, to 1965, roughly, which is the year the United States intervened militarily in South Vietnam. And it's not a traditional survey um, of the kind that you, in which you cover kind of all the major figures in the arts um, and try to kind of list all the main works that they produced. Um, partly just because I find those books boring and kind of hard <laughs> to remember what you just finished reading. Um, but partly because I wanted to embed the important figures and their work in a larger social, economic, political context. So the book proceeds by a series of what I call vertical cross sections in which I pick a major figure, or sometimes two or three major figures, and I use them as kind of tent poles to organize a discussion of the larger milieu in which they're operating. So the art world, the music industry, book publishing, um, the status of women, uh, all these different contexts that help us understand why this particular figure was able to produce the kind of work that they produced that made a difference. Um, so consequently, there's a lot of stuff that's left out. That's pretty much every reviewer of the book has pointed out. Um, I knew that when I was writing it because I just, as I said, didn't want to cover everything because I wanted to give a lot of attention to particular figures. So there are 18 chapters altogether. And as I said, the book begins in 1945. So the first chapter is on George Kennan, who's the author of The Policy of Containment. And that gave a logical endpoint to my story because Vietnam was a crisis of containment. So he kind of begins and ends the book. Along the way, I talk a lot about the art world, uh, because the visual arts, for various reasons, are just very vivid representation of the cultural change that you see in this period, probably more so than, for example, 
history of the novel or something like that. Um, I also talk about various uh, intellectual movements, particularly existentialism, which Sartre and existentialism basically begins in 1945, right after the war, becomes, as everybody knows, widely influential for almost 20 years after that. Um, I talk about theories of totalitarianism, focusing on Hannah Arendt, uh, whose book The Origins of Totalitarianism was published in 1951. Abstract Expressionist Painting, uh, particularly Jackson Pollock. Um, the Beat Writers uh, and their weird relationship to Lionel Trilling, the Columbia professor and critic, who's not exactly the figure you would pick to be big influence on Allen Ginsberg. Um, the development of structural anthropology, um, which is important for various reasons we could talk about later. Um, there's a big chapter on John Cage and the artists associated with him, Merce Cunningham, the dancer, choreographer, Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns, a chapter on rock and roll, focusing on Elvis and then the Beatles, um, chapter on changes in obscenity law, which really affected the book publishing business in a major way, um, and that involved various court cases uh, over obscenity uh, charges. Um, then I talk about James Baldwin, uh, particularly his stay in Paris, where he lived for about nine years, um, and his exposure to the debates about decolonization, which were going on in France. So when he comes back to the U.S. in 1957, kind of joins the civil rights movement, he's been exposed to these discussions uh, about race and colonialism in France. Um, chapter on British pop art. So British pop art way precedes American pop art, dates from the early 1950s. It's a response to American consumerism. Um, I have a long chapter on literary criticism because that's my discipline. <laughs> so I talk about the, the rise of the new critics. Uh, and then uh, finally with the appearance in the U.S. of Jacques Derrida, 1966. Um, a chapter on Andy Warhol and American pop art. Uh, chapter on the women's movement. Betty Friedan is the major figure. And Susan Sontag, who was not involved with the women's movement, didn't particularly want to be thought of as a woman writer, but who I think made a major impact on the way people thought about, intellectuals thought about, uh, taught about art. Um, I have a chapter on the civil rights movement, again, with a lot of Baldwin in it, sort of the second chapter of his career. Um, uh, then a chapter on the movies, um, in particular, the relationship between French cinema and American cinema, which is a great story. Um, and then I end, as I say, with Vietnam. And in that chapter, I talk about the rise of the new left, SDS, Citizens so of a Democratic Society, which was created in 1962, and then the free speech movement at Berkeley, which was in 1964. Um, I end with the revelations of the CIA's involvement covertly in funding a lot of cultural, intellectual, and political activities that were supposedly non-governmental, and the kind of crisis that presented to American intellectuals in particular. And then, as I say, end with George Kennan being asked by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 1966, did your policy of containment mandate that we intervene militarily in Vietnam? And he couldn't answer that question. Uh, and that's the end of the book. Excellent. And many of the figures that you've cataloged in your book are, are well known to audience members of this, this podcast. But I would like to start at the beginning because you you sort of start the book in the wake of World War II, 
and you go back before the war and into the war. But with, I think, three major ideas, um, the policy of containment um, that George Cannon puts together, Hannah Arendt's ideas of uh, anti-totalitarianism, and this sort of um, French existentialism. And I, I wanted to know if you thought that these key ideas remain potent throughout uh, the book and, and, and even extend into the arts of the, the, the people that you catalog in the book. I think the answer is yes. Um, so for this 20 year period, I think containment was the foreign policy of the United States. Rhetorically, the American government talked about liberation, rollback, and so on. But every opportunity the United States had uh, prior to Vietnam to intervene um, uh, on behalf of anti-communist forces, for example, in Eastern Europe, we've, we did not do so. The classic case being the Hungarian Revolution, 1956. So, but, but, so our policy really was containment. And the whole point of containment was we don't need to drop the bomb on them. They'll self-destruct because communism is inefficient, but we should just be patient and don't let them expand. Um, so as I said, Vietnam is a crisis of that policy. Um, so for 20 years, I think that was more or less the policy of the American government, de facto anyway. Existentialism, yeah, it had a, it had a huge effect well beyond its origins in the immediate post-war period in France. If you think about what Sartre was dealing with in 1945, He's dealing with a country, a history of collaborationism, whose army had collapsed uh, with the German invasion in 1940, uh, who, that was morally bankrupt uh, or conflicted, um, and also had suffered devastation to its industrial infrastructure. So uh, existentialism was a kind of response to a moment of, you know, of scarcity, of anxiety, um, uh, a time when, you know, people needed a optimistic way of thinking about their lives. It's interesting that the US existentialism is received as a very negative, pessimistic, atheistic philosophy, but it's totally not. Uh, it's all about making free choices. And uh, so, but it, it spills over well into a period of affluence, both in France and the US, um, and, and kind of becomes an unofficial philosophy of college students and so on. So Tom Hayden's very influenced by existentialism, uh, his wife, Casey Hayden was. So uh, so that's also a big part of the period. Then finally, yeah, um, I think that it's true that one way to characterize this period in terms of US political culture is anti-communism. But much broader was anti-totalitarianism, which is to say that people both on the right and the left were worried that the United States could tip into some form of totalitarianism. So for people on the left, that form of totalitarianism would look like Nazism or fascism. For people on the right, it would look like Soviet communism. But this anxiety was based on the apprehension that modern history just had nowhere to go, that the crisis of the Great Depression and the war and the devastation of all of that indicated that the only way you could govern mass publics was by some kind of authoritarian or totalitarian regime. And that's what Orwell's book, 1984, was taken as saying. Orwell wasn't saying, this is what Soviet communism looks like, because he'd already satirized that in Animal Farm. He was saying, this is what the future looks like. 
This is what it's going to be like for everybody. This is where history is headed. So that anti anxiety about totalitarianism or anti-totalitarianism really informs the politics of the period. Does it have an effect on art and literature and culture more broadly? I think uh, only obliquely for mo in most, I mean, not completely, but most cases only obliquely. I don't think that people like John Cage were thinking a whole lot about communism um, uh, or totalitarianism. I think that there's a there's a kind of an art for art's sake uh, tenor to the cultural history of this period in which people are focused on what is music, what is a painting, you know, what is cinema. Uh, they're not that concerned with the political implications of it, except more broadly to embrace freedom of expression and so on, which obviously has a politics to it. If I can uh, jump in, I <clears throat> I thought maybe a fourth uh, idea is pluralism. Um, I really loved your chapter on Isaiah Berlin. Um, you you actually echo something from Metaphysical Club, which is one of my favorite uh, parts of the book, uh, where you talk about pluralism being an attempt to make a good out of the fact that goods are often incommensurable. Yeah, I've used that in class a lot. <laughs> students trying to sort of get across this idea, but you were talking about that in a much well somewhat earlier time frame um so what's different about pluralism in the cold war versus sort of the progressive era when uh, you were talking about it in metaphysical club i think it's still a, a pretty much a mainstream value pluralism in the post-war u.s uh which doesn't mean that in practice <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. whole lot is done to encourage uh encourage difference but um you're referring to isaiah berlin's essay Two concepts of liberty, which is 1958, and that that was Berlin's basic value was pluralism, as you say, on the theory that end, people's ends are incommensurable, so you have to tolerate people who have different ends from your own um, and allow them to pursue them. Um, so yeah, I think that was I think that was pretty much official dogma. Now the United States, in terms of its sort of propaganda mission, wanted to promote the idea that all kinds of beliefs and practices are accepted here. There's no official orthodox way of living or way of painting and so on, as there presumably was in communist countries. So pluralism is consistent, at least the theory of pluralism is consistent with that. Would you agree with that? Um, gosh, I mean, you know, there, there's certainly the sort of obvious contradictions of, um, you know, anti-communism um, at home and abroad, right? Um, the idea of the 50s as being an age of conformity. I mean, you know, you certainly play around with that because it's it's always kind of an oversimplification. But I just think if you look at US policy um, abroad during the Cold War, um, it definitely was not supporting, in, in my view, was not necessarily supporting uh, political pluralism. Uh, the CIA and Gladio and all these the sort of shenanigans going on all over the world. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a war between uh, capitalism and socialism fundamentally. And, uh, you know, the Soviets gave socialism kind of a bad name, but, you know, there were serious socialists in Western Europe, like Sartre, who was anti-capitalist. Um, being an anti-capitalist, he had to sort of show sympathy to the Soviet experiment even though I surely knew all the bad things about it. Um, and, you know, so a lot, of it was, a lot of it was about that. And to that extent, of course, the American government was intolerant of deviant political views. Yeah. 
And do you think that because in this in this period you you have someone like Sartre and he's you know he has this tension between his idea of existentialism as a, a you know sort of a being choosing to be oneself and choosing to resist these kinds of uh, totalitarian pressures that he experienced uh, during the war. But do you think that there's a contradiction between that and then him embracing um, Soviet-style communism at that specific time? Because one would think that uh, in terms of the um, anti-totalitarianism that you know, could be linked to him, you, you, one would find in Hannah Arendt or other writers like that, that you know, Sartre was in quite a difficult position and, and, and do you think that's probably why um, he struggled later on to, to catch on in, 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 in America? Yeah, that's right. I think that um, the existentialist piece of Sartre's thought had an actual appeal to Americans um, for obvious reasons, just be, mm-hmm. because of the valorization of the idea of individual liberty, mm-hmm. which is sort of sacred to American political culture. The, the um, sympathy or leaning towards Soviet Union was not appealing. And I think for that reason, both Sartre and Beauvoir lost their influence in the US and ultimately lost their influence in France uh, because they made a point of showing sympathy to not just Soviet Union, but then later on Castro's Cuba. That, that didn't play well in the United States. Um, so. And, and they were considered by Americans to be anti-American, which, which they were. Um, so that, that was the role he chose to play in the Cold War. The reason is, I think the re- explanation for it, because you're right, it's inconsistent with other aspects of his thought, is the one I gave, which is that he was anti-capitalist. Um, and uh, he, he believed in the workers' revolution. And he believed, to some extent, in, in his version of Marxism. Um, so he, those were choices that he made. And it, it's consistent with philosophy to the extent that you make a choice and then you live by it. So he made that choice and then he tried to make it right. Um, but I think not totally successfully. He had a brief resurgence, of course, in May 1968, because that's a moment when suddenly France, intellectual France, gets kind of radicalized. And then he fades out of it again. Do you think that they were trying to almost create an idea of a of a new man, almost, you know, someone that you know, did choose his actions, someone that who who was able to deal with the anxieties of mass society and make free choices in that sense? And 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 I think one of the things that 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 quite uh, strikes me about the the early part of your book is the um, section on David Reisman, the uh, sociologist. You, you say that, that Reisman thought about what the Americans had been previously. They had been sort of um, inner-directed, and now they were sort of uh, other-directed. And, 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 and all this, this stuff about um, existentialism and then the... the the work that's coming from Reisman, is it creating a sort of platform for a sort of new type of person to emerge in this post 
war period, someone that could be resistant to the kinds of um, mass hysterias that that were experienced during the the war. Um, I think my answer is no, but see if I can explain why. I, think mm -hmm. that. I don't think Sartre thought that he was creating a new model for human beings. I thought he was saying this is what human beings are. Human beings are beings that do not have an essence, unlike everything else in the world. Um, we don't know what it means to be a human being. We have to decide that for ourselves. That's always been the case. We solve that problem. Most human beings solve that problem by having other people tell us what it means to be a human being. You should do this because you're a black person. You should do this because you're a woman. You should do this because you're French, whatever. The, sort of the basic line of Sartrean philosophy is you don't have to listen to that. You could make your own choices independent of color of your skin or anything else. Um, so he didn't think that was a new thing. He just thought that was that was the nature of being human, uh, being a human being, Dasein, uh, as Heidegger put it, and and that's and, and that should guide your actions. In the case of Reisman, um, as you suggested, uh, his view is complicated because this is the Lonely Crowd, published in 1951, um, because yeah the sort of immediate takeaway of that book is that Americans used to be interdirected. I mean, it had kind of a gyroscope that kind of, you know, helped guide them to making decisions in life. And now they're other directed, meaning they read signals from other people to know what to do. Um, and, that, and that that's produces a sense, produces conformity. So, so broadly, that's kind of the shift that he's describing, but he basically is describing a shift from a kind of production-oriented socioeconomic system uh, in which you have to kind of go out and make things and sell them to a consumption-oriented socioeconomic system in which you have a lot of leisure time that you can fill in various ways. So in a consumption-oriented society, you are other-directed in the sense that you're looking at the options that other people are presenting to you and making choices about them. He thought that it was possible in the, in other-directed society, post-war society, it's only 1951 we're talking about, right? Um, that it was possible to develop relative autonomy because you were able to kind of juggle different choices that were made available to you by entertainment culture to choose, you know, what choices were right for you or what kind of identity you wanted. So he wasn't, it's not really a book about conformism exactly. Um, it's just interesting that, that The Lonely Cry comes out in 1951 and it sets up a model for the way people thought about the entire decade, even though it was written about the 1940s. And the term the silent generation, which is also used to characterize the 50s, describing college students in the 1950s, was coined in 1950. So these are writers writing about the immediate post-war period. They're not writing from the perspective of 1960. So it's interesting that this gets projected across the whole period, which I think is, can be very misleading. And do you see a shift towards um, at all a romanticization of America or the or what America could be by these European writers and European thinkers? I would say, you know, in, in the ways that they are influenced by um, the sort of protagonists in Hemingway novels or Manhattan Transfer, are they seeing something new? Uh, in America and in the future, 
or are, are they sort of setting out, you know, or describing something for, for all people? I think, um, so you're, what you're alluding to is uh, the great interest that French writers had in American fiction in the 1930s. <clears throat> There's a big wave of French translations of American novels by people like Hemingway, Dos Passos, um, uh, and so on, uh, that were very influential, very popular, also very influential on French uh, novel writing, people like Beauvoir and Sartre and Camus. Um, so the, those French writers had very favorable ideas about American fiction and what American writers were able to do. In my view, they basically misread or misinterpreted a lot of these novels, but they took away from it something they thought was very positive, a particular idea about psychology um, um, versus action. Uh, so yeah, so that is influential. Sartre and Beauvoir loved American movies. Um, they loved uh, uh, American music, popular music, blues, you know, work, working songs, uh, jazz. Um, Donald in Duck. Modern times, there, <laughs> there, What's that? Donald Duck. Donald Duck. Yeah. So Sartre's supposed to have done a great Donald Duck impression. Uh, no, they liked they liked American popular culture. As a lot of Europeans did, you know, mm -hmm. especially movies uh, and music. So, um, so before the war, that was relatively unproblematic. After the war, you get the Cold War, and the Cold War, which you know, it's easy from a European point of view to blame the United States for uh, getting into it, creating this bipolar division, it puts Western Europe in a terrible place. Because Western Europe is basically the potential battleground of any military conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. That, that's not where they want it to be. And they remained there through the entire Cold War period until 1989, because it's all, remember all the debates about missiles and everything, you know. So the Europeans hated this situation. And so, so anti-Americanism came very naturally to them because they blamed the United States for putting them in the situation, basically making them dependent on American military presence. So NATO's headquarters are in Paris, Congress for Cultural Freedom is in Paris. You know, they're basically occupying Western Europe as part of the Cold War. They didn't like that. So that contributes to a reversal of attitude about the United States. Now, it's not true for everybody, of course. For example, the British pop artists, uh, artists like Eduardo Palozzi and Richard Hamilton loved American culture. Rainer Bonham, they loved American cars and advertising and consumerism, and a lot of their art was based on that. They thought that was the future. That was pleasure. That was you know that was a stimulation for them. Um, they didn't have a negative view of commercialism at all. So, I think it just depends. What what really sours Western European intellectual opinion about the United States is the war in Vietnam. You know, after that, there's kind of no going back. Um, anti-Americanism anti kind of gets institutionalized in that sense. In the, in the late 19th century, um, you know, France is considered to be the, you know, the, the heart of uh, Western culture, the heart of uh, European culture for literature, for arts, um, you know, arts like the Impressionists, art movements. And it's not all of France, as you detail, it's particular parts of Paris. It's not all of Paris, as you detail, you know. But it is considered to be the heart of this thing. And But you detail a switch from France and from Europe towards America yeah. in the production of arts and culture 
I think um, the most interesting one stands is you know the the, the MoMA Art Gallery is is designed in New York to you know place a lot of um, European art and then you know uh, artists like uh, Jackson Pollock and uh, emerge and critics like um, Herman Greenberg emerge. So could you detail the this 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 coming of America is the the center of art and culture in the world. I know it's a difficult um, you know thing to detail in, in the minutes yeah. that we have, but yeah, could you could you do that? Yeah, okay. Um, so one of the reasons that Paris had this status in pre nineteen forty five world culture is it was very cheap to live there. I think people don't take that into account, but because of the continual devaluation of the franc, people with dollars and pounds find it very inexpensive to live in Paris. So a lot of artists and writers, particularly when they were starting out, it's like moving to Brooklyn in the 1970s, you know, it was just a cheap place to go. And um, uh, <laughs> so, so as a consequence, writers from all over the world would end up in, in, in painters and so on, would end up in Paris um, and they would uh, interact. So Paris became a kind of hub of cultural exchange because these people from all over, all kinds of different places in Europe and the U.S. would end up there and they would meet each other and influence each other. So it, it deserved its reputation as kind of a crossroads for international culture. And that continues until 1959. So after the war, contrary to what a lot of people think, American painters continued to go to Paris. They would get educated in Paris, they'd have their first shows in Paris, they thought they needed to have a Parisian sort of um, identity. Uh, and uh, that lasts until 1959 when the in New Frank is introduced and that completely changes the exchange rates and Americans find it very expensive suddenly to go to France. So so that's part of the reason why France has that, had that, uh, became the sort of the capital of the modern uh, in the 20th century. Uh, and as I say that that lasts really into the late 50s, although a lot of Americans who go to Paris after the war are kind of disenchanted by it. Um, so that's only part of the part of your question. The other part has to do with how the art world, you know, as people say, kind of migrated to New York. I think there's an impression which is misleading that Americans thought that with the fall of France in 1940, the art world would immediately relocate in New York. A lot of people said that. But the reason they said it is because they thought that the Nazi occupation of Europe would last much longer than it did. And they knew that the Nazis were intolerant of modern art and it would drive modern artists to New York, which is which it did. But they didn't stay because the Nazi occupation of France lasted only four years. So they all went back to Paris after 1944, um, all the French artists who had come to New York. So it's not the case that all, all these painters ended up in the United States and stayed there. They didn't stay there. Um, what had to happen for American art to become important in world culture was there had to be an art world in the United States of galleries, museums, collectors, critics, dealers who would deal with contemporary American painting. And that's something that only emerges in the 1950s and early 1960s. So the abstract expressions had very little in the way of venues to show their work. Museums weren't interested in it. There were very few, as I said, New York galleries that showed it. Not that many people collected it. Um, you know, it had a hard time. It was people knew about it, but it wasn't didn't really have an art world to sustain it. 
By the time you get pop art in 1962, there's all way more galleries showing contemporary American art, there are people collecting contemporary American art, museums are interested in purchasing it. It's a whole different situation. And that enables the American art world to suddenly absorb all this, all this other art from around the world. And that's the moment when there's a shift from Europe to the United States in the arts. Fascinating. And in Does that answer the, your question? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in the arts, again, you know, because we started again with these core ideas of anti-communism and um, existentialism and authenticity. In the arts, do you see this emphasis on, on these things? Because you, you also detail the, the coming of um, writers like Norman Mailer, you know, who has a particular idea about uh, America in the 1950s as a society of conformity, he, which he, you know, he writes about in advertisements for myself. And he, you know, he sees the, the American Negro as, um, again, as sort of um, a, a possibility of a, of a wave of a, of a future. These ideas of freedom, uh, self-expression and authenticity coming from um, the existentialists in France, do, do, do you see that in the, the arts of abstract expressionism and in the art that is produced in this period? I don't. So Miller's kind of an exception. You know, he's very, he's interested in existentialism. Um, he wants to kind of import it to the United States. As you say, he uses the black experience, I should say the black experience of black men, as kind of his metaphor for what it means to be an American existentialist or a hipster. Um, but that's a little unusual. I think that most, certainly people in the art world and music world are much more interested in the formal possibilities of the medium. As I said, what is music? You know, is silence music? Can it be made into music? Is throwing paint on a canvas painting? What makes it like a painting? Mm -hmm. you know, all these unconventional approaches to the arts were basically formalist experiments. That ends with Vietnam. Again, everything gets politicized after that. But really up until that point, including Susan Sontag, who's a total formalist, it's really about the nature of art. What is it? Um, and it's an exciting moment, you know, when people, some, I quote this guy, Morton Feldman, who was an avant-garde composer, who was a part of John Cage's circle, um, as saying, for, for a moment in the 1950s, everybody didn't know what art was. That's a very exciting moment when you don't you, anything is possible, and so so that that doesn't have a whole lot to do with with politics. Um, well, I would think with existentialism, mm -hmm. you know, people often say, partly because Harold Rosenberg, the art critic, wrote this famous essay about the action painters that Pollock's painting is existentialist. I don't think it is. I don't think he thought it was. He thought he's making a painting. Um, so he's he's trying to produce. A work of art by taking the canvas off the easel and putting it on the floor. Well, how would how would you do that? That's a formal problem. So I tend to think that's what's the driver for a lot of this a lot of this art. That's kind of what makes it interesting to think about because they're raising interesting questions about what art is. So I tend to see less existentialism, less communism or anti-communism in a lot of the cultural products of this period maybe than most people do. Again, there's exceptions like Mailer, Howell. You know, it's clearly a political poem. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not it's not true for everything, but it but I think it's an important that's an important and often a kind of primary impulse behind what's going on. 
I think these tensions come again in your analysis of the films in this period. Again, it's, it's this this relationship between between France and America with uh, Bazin, who was the the critic and theorist of um, French cinema. Didn't he think that the cinema was about uh, a sort of kind of self-expression? But again, is that lost in the fact that Godard and Truffaut, again, focused much more on the form and the medium and, and what the medium could do, as opposed to, you know, the internal life of the, of the artists? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think about, I've never thought about it quite that way. So yeah, Bessin is uh, behind the, I think it's Truffaut gave it a name, the politique des auteurs, auteur theory. And basically the, the theory is that the director of the movie is like the author of a book mm -hmm. and like the author of a book who writes many novels, let's say, like Dickens, let's say, there's such a thing as a Dickens novel. Um, Every Dickens novel is different, but there's kind of something Dickensian about it. So they thought the same thing of like a Howard Hawks movie or a John Ford movie. There's a John Ford movie or a Hitchcock movie as a certain style that belongs to that director in the same way that Hemingway has a Hemingway style. And they thought that's a useful way to think about movies. Um, they didn't think it, politique just means policy. It doesn't mean, it's not politics or anything. So they thought that was a good way of thinking about movies. It doesn't mean that, so Bazin thought that movies were personal expression but in a very disinterested way. So he thought the movie experience should be as representational of actual lived experience as possible. So the introduction of sound, for example, into cinema, which a lot of purists thought destroyed movies, he thought was great because it added another dimension of reality that could be reproduced in film. He thought that 3D cinema would be a good thing. He thought everything that makes the experience of a movie like the experience of the world deep focus, all these, all these things were good because that's the essence of cinemas to represent the world as a totality. But the world from a particular point of view, mm -hmm. be the point of view of the director. I, I'm just um, thinking about cinema in this way and what, what you had just said that the art and kind of cultural products of this time weren't necessarily capturing the anti-communism or existentialism um, and politics of it. I find that very interesting, and especially with the conversation about around pluralism earlier. Um, I study early Cold War cinema, uh, and I think I, I think I disagree with a few of these points, um, and I find it very fascinating to kind of think this through with you, um, both both you, Louis, and Alex. In your chapter on Hollywood and cinema, um, you mentioned that that it is a propaganda machine and that it was acknowledged as Hollywood it was acknowledged at the time as a propaganda propaganda machine um, by the MP -E, uh, A E the MPAE. MPAA, yeah. Well, the the exports abroad. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of the party line stance of Hollywood was that we were we are producing an image of American life and this is how we want the world to view what America is. And I think a lot of cinema really kind of files down into a non-pluralistic impression of who ideal Americans were in this period. Um, and I was wondering if you could just talk more on that 
in terms of kind of American cinema at the time and how it's viewed abroad during the Cold War? Yeah, no, that's your that's a totally valid point. Thank you. Um, uh, after the war, uh, Hollywood was very interested in making sure that movie markets abroad were open mm -hmm. uh, because foreign countries had quota systems or other barriers to entry of foreign films into their markets. They wanted to protect their own industries. That's particularly true in France, which had for most of the 20th century had a very powerful film industry. Um, and they were naturally concerned about Hollywood sort of taking some of that territory, particularly after the war when the film industry, like everything else, was very depleted in France. There was a huge backlog of American inventory of American movies that had been made during the war that hadn't been seen in Europe. So uh, because of France's poor financial situation, they're basically forced to lower their quotas to mm -hmm. foreign movies, and that allowed Hollywood to dump a lot of product uh, in the French market. They also dumped a lot of product in the German market, West German market. Most movies that Germans saw in the 1950s were made in America and in the Italian market where they didn't, they didn't have to negotiate. They just dumped the stuff. So uh, that's when Hollywood basically took over European cinema. And, and that mm -hmm. was able partly because, as you said, the MPAA, Motion Picture Association of America, uh, promoted movies as a way of selling the American way of life. So you're implying there's a lot of conformity to that vision in Hollywood product of the 1950s, there's no question that that's true. And that, that that was part of the reason for that, as I'm suggesting, is that it was it was a smart move financially to create a product that the American government would be very happy to help promote in other countries, because that's a great source of revenue for the American film industry. On the other hand, what, what were the movies that influenced French filmmakers? They were gangster movies. They weren't movies about, you know, it wasn't like It's a Wonderful Life uh, or Doris Day <laughs> movies. They were, they were movies, you know, about criminals. They, that's what they liked. That's what Breathless is a model on these criminal movies, movies about criminals. So like every other effort in cultural diplomacy, kind of boomerangs. So what you think you're gonna get by sending a certain product abroad, rock and roll is another example, comes out, turns out completely differently when it comes back to you. So I'm telling the story of the kind of American movie that influenced movies like 400 Blows, Breathless, Jules and Jim, and the French New Wave movies. Right, of course. If you're focusing on um, the form and um, and how many of these artists, you know, have taken and tried to stretch the form and are concerned with the forms of their, their different arts, um, how do you think that popular art comes into this? Because there are people, even Americans, like Clement Greenberg, for example, who don't think popular art is significant, who do think popular art degradates culture. And, and yet popular art has to be part of, of this story. So, so, so to what extent do you think that popular art was part of this broader story of, of challenging conventions or challenging forms in this period. Yeah, so Clement Greenberg wrote an essay in 1939 called Avant-Garde and Kitsch. And that binary was very influential among educated Americans and American intellectuals up until the early 1960s. There is 
this kind of mass culture, which is basically a commodity culture. It's created by business people, and it's kind of foisted on the mass public through advertising and so on. Um, television kind of epitomizes that. It's very lowest common denominator media. Um, and, you know, most intellectuals, right or left, kind of accepted this binary. What blows that up is pop art, basically, because pop art says, well, we can make we can make a painting out of a Coke bottle, um, and we should just in, in, in movie stars and so forth. We can we can embrace this. We can embrace it in a spirit of irony and so forth. But we can you know we, we don't have to exclude it. And not and it's more than that. It's also that fine art is also a commodity. It's manufactured by somebody and then sold to somebody. That's you know it's it's still part of the system of exchange like everything else. So that's kind of an early '60s moment when. People suddenly acknowledge that. Um, and that's why a writer like Susan Sontag was important because even though she herself was an incredible snob and a highbrow, she saw that the direction things were going in is that people were listening to the Supremes. You know, they're watching Hollywood movies. They, they, they don't care about highbrow, lowbrow anymore. And that's an important moment in American cultural development when intellectuals sort of give up this idea that popular culture is is as you say, degraded or debased or somehow not worth paying attention to. So in other countries, they generally like American popular culture. They might like America, but they like, uh, they like as I said, the British artists in the 50s liked American magazines and the advertising in them. Um, they liked American cars when they could get them, which is pretty infrequently, like American comic books. And they liked rock and roll. So rock and roll really becomes worldwide by 1957. Everybody, every almost everywhere in the world, kids are dancing to rock and roll music. There's an Elvis imitator in Tokyo who doesn't know English, who's singing the songs in English. So, you know, this becomes, it just catches on around the world. And the American government had nothing to do with that. It was not part of cultural diplomacy. It was not subvented by the CIA. It was just, it was just a very successful commercial product. Um, and the same is true of movies. Movie like gangster movies. It's just they were very successful. It had nothing to do with the government except in the sense of keeping the market open for them. But they were way more influential than Lionel Trilling and Partisan Review or the Museum of Modern Art because they appealed to a broad public. And I think you've, you've, you've just touched on this already, but in what way did you think the, this focus filled filtered down in, into American culture to the, especially to the emerging baby boomer generation uh, in the time before um, the Vietnam War. What, how did what, how did what affect the, the, this um, emerging art, how did this um, art culture filter down to, uh, into, into American culture uh, more broadly? You mean popular culture? Yeah, American popular culture. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly what you mean, but you know, by the 1960s, young people are listening to rock and roll. It's a huge market, and it validates it as an art form. I mean, you, you know, it's just be ridiculous to claim that the Beatles are not interesting or worthwhile. Um, you could say that maybe about Elvis in the 50s, but you can't, couldn't say it about the Beatles or the British invasion. You know, the, the, all the British rock and rollers all went to art college. I mean, they knew what they were doing. 
it's just a way more sophisticated kind of form or hipper form of popular culture that most American musicians could produce. So it had a big influence. It's very hard to deny that. It's hard to deny that Motown is great to listen to. I mean, it's just it just became ridiculous to claim that this stuff wasn't worth attention. And of course, young people don't have inhibitions about it. They grow up with it. You know, they didn't know a different world. They all own transistor radios. You know, they can listen to anything they want. It just it just changes the geography of it. But I think part of what happens is that, I think more interestingly, is that culture becomes global. So that now, which is true today, now literary fiction, movies, uh, God knows popular music, it's all global. It's sold everywhere in the world. Um, not, people don't think about it in terms of nationality anymore. It circulates through New York, Los Angeles, and Silicon Valley, right? So that's the United States is kind of like the financial distribution center for this global culture. You see that starting to happen in the late 1960s. People stopped talking about French art. It's just, there's just art. Um, so that's, you know, that's, part of, that's part of what this kind of breakdown of the old hierarchical nationalist-based model of arts was uh, by the mid-60s. I thought it was very interesting, um, in particular in your discussion of the Beatles. Um, <clears throat> I think that people often think that Sgt. Pepper or Revolver is the moment when the Beatles start getting taken more seriously as a potentially like a real art. But yeah. you talk about Hard Day's Night and yeah. the way you discussed it, it really seems like that was a moment where something clicked and people were like, hmm, it's actually a pretty good movie. Um, it's it's, it's yeah. not just a sort of kitschy Elvis, like, you know, just sort of um, just trying to like maximize, you know, the, the franchise, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I didn't know. I also thought, you know, starts with Revolver, you know, but no, actually it seems to have started uh, with uh, with Hard Day's Night. And for the reason you gave, which is that grownups could go to that movie and enjoy it. Uh, you had to kind of take it seriously. It was yeah. very witty. It was very clever. It looked like the French New Wave. I mean, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. Yeah, no, it was great. Uh, it broke down the sort of adolescent adult taste barrier, you know. Uh, I, remember, I went to it with my mother. She loved it. You know, I was, I don't know, I was 12 or something. <clears throat> uh, we're, we're coming up to the hour now. I, I've got a couple of questions for Louis, but does anyone else have any questions that they'd like to get out before we, uh, before we, we come up to the hour mark? Otherwise, I think I'm going to ask one thing. Um, oh, yeah, go ahead. Just, this is kind of broad, but um, I wondered if you could say a little bit about um, modernity and what it meant during this period of time because um, a lot of the anxiety about totalitarianism as you show was about the idea that basically mass modern industrial society might just the logic of it might just lead in this direction whether it's right or left and a, 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 an anxiety about the trajectory or the logic of uh, modernity and so would you say that this period of time in the late 40s, the 50s, is that a time of a crisis of modernity, a loss of faith, or, or a time of doubt about modernity, or not? Yeah, no, I think you're right. It is about modernity. And the, 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 the thinkers who, who are particularly anxious about this tend to trace the origins of totalitarianism to the emergence of modernity. Um, it creates mass publics. Um, it creates the media that are uh, used to propagandize and brainwash the public. Um, it encourages the rise of charismatic 
leaders and so on. So yeah, it is about it is about modernity. And the truth is, as soon as modernity emerges, there's a crisis of modernity. I mean, it goes all the way back to the 18th century, right? Uh, so this is this is another moment where it's like suddenly, is this what modernity is all about? Um, yeah, right. Um, any other questions? Uh, I I was just going to j- jump in with a, c- a couple questions, Louis, if that's okay. Um, first was okay. sort of a, a double-barreled question for you, which was. Um, did you have any preconceived theories or uh, prejudices about the time period that you had to kind of put to one side before starting the research of this book? And secondly, did researching this book change your perspective on the relationship between art and the environment around it? Uh, so that's a good question. So the answer is, of course, I did have presuppositions, as you, as we all do when we start a project, and uh, they really changed as I worked through the period. Um, I, so I had read Francis Stoner Saunders' book, Cultural Cold War, which came out in 1999. I was, very influ- I was very impressed by that book. And I sort of thought, this is the story. The story is that what we think of as kind of these independent developments in the worlds of art and ideas actually had a kind of covert funding, as it were, because they were supported secretly by the American government. And I found that wasn't true. We've already talked about that quite a bit today. Um, and then, of course, when I went back to her book, I thought a lot of the things in there were misle- extremely misleading. Um, so I began to see that, that she, you know, she's onto something, but a lot of the claims that she makes are just wrong or poorly sourced. Um, so I began to try to put together my own story about what was happening, and I found it was somewhat a somewhat different story. So I had a different I had a different title for the book. I kind of had a different idea about where I was going to go with it. By the time I'd written two or three chapters, I realized that the story was quite different from what I thought it would be. Um, so I, I'm I'm proud of myself <laughs> for being open-minded enough <laughs> to recognize that you know I needed to follow the material where it was going to take me. I, I just shouldn't try to impose a thesis on it in advance, uh, which I which I think is good history. At the end, you'd have to look back and say, "Well, so what does it all add up to?" You know. But I did try to take the story wherever the story was going to go, and that was—it was kind of a fun. I mean, it was like climbing a bunch of mountains, but it was—you know—it was interesting intellectually to see how the pieces fit together. They didn't fit together the way I thought they would. Um, I think I have a last question about the book, and and as Alex has said, you know that you know in the 1940s and 50s, there was this crisis of, of, of modernity. I think it's, you know, viscerally, you could see it not just in the war, but in, in you know, in the, the fights between the communists and the fascists in France and all over the world. But how do you think that the art at all engages with this crisis of modernity? The art that is produced in the post-war, in, in the immediate post-war period. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I don't look at the art that way. I don't, cause mm-hmm. I don't, really, I don't quite see, I mean, I'm probably missing something in your question. Cause I'm sure you, I'm sure you're right to something, but I don't really quite read it that way. So one way that, so there's two ways of thinking about the relationship between um, totalitarianism in Soviet Union and Germany in the 30s and 40s and modernity. And one way of thinking about it, which is the way that the Frankfurt School writers thought about it, was that they were connected, that modernity 
produced by the kind of logic of liberal individualism and free marxism, blah, 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 produce the conditions for totalitarianism. The, the root cause lay in the Enlightenment itself. The other view is the Fukuyama view, the end of history view. So he writes the end of history in 1989, which is the last year of the Cold War, sort of technically. And he says, basically, fascism and Soviet communism were backlashes against modernity. And now they've been defeated and discredited modernity as one. Modernity meaning basically liberal individuals with enlightenment values. And going forward, that's just the course that history is going to take. So that's the, that's the opposite reading of the reading that people had like Orwell and Hannah Arendt about what had happened with, and, and Adorno and Horkheimer, about what had happened with totalitarianism. So, so there's a huge intellectual, in other words, interest in this phenomenon. People are trying to understand the direction history is taking, you know, just like Marx tried to understand it, um, try to analyze it. And there's all kinds of different, there's Guy Debord, there's all these different interesting takes on what happened and how we got from, you know, 18th century to contemporary or early 20th century life. Um, did the arts have something to do with it? I, in the period I'm writing about, I would say less than later on. After 1965, they definitely have a lot to do with it. So a lot of art and literature is about this problem. Um, a lot of it's a response to the society of the spectacle and all the things that are mixed up in this attempt to analyze and understand the direction that modern history is taking. I just think it's less true uh, for this sort of the kind of stuff I'm talking about in the book, there's lots of other art I don't deal with, but for mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff, I think it's less, less a preoccupation. Now, maybe you had something in mind when you asked that question that I'm completely missing. That is an ingredient. I think that maybe, uh, maybe what Toby might have been having in mind is um, sort of coming out of World War II and the Holocaust and the nuclear bomb, basically like creating the sense that wow, we've created something that's really horrible and we this yeah. is not progress like this is yeah. the opposite of progress so i'm just wondering if this was a time of optimism or a time of pessimism about sort of the direction of the culture i know that's like you can't really totally generalize that but how did how were artists and writers grappling with that yeah so that's yeah so i see what you're saying so that is important i don't talk about a lot in the book but i should probably yeah so there's anxiety there's anxiety about the bomb and there's uh and there's attempt to understand the meaning of the Holocaust. And Norman Mailer's essay, The White Negro, which we've talked about already, those are the two things he talks about. The bomb and the Holocaust show us that life is precarious, could end at any moment. We could be in a nuclear exchange and that's the end of it. Um, and that is sort of the basis for his existentialism. So yeah, so those are concerns. You see it in Howell. Um, you know, you see, I mean, it's not like people didn't think about it or care about it. They did, and they made statements about it. I just think when you look a lot at, if you look at Silent Piece for Piano or the drip paintings or something, you're, that's not what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, so that's all. Yeah, But no, that's completely true. That's I don't mean to suggest that, that these ideas that we have about the anxieties of the period are kind of irrelevant to the culture because they're clearly not irrelevant. But all I'm saying is when you kind of dive into what the particular artists were doing, it's hard to see that they were terribly motivated by those concerns, even though they may have shared them. Great. No, 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 I think that that completely answers uh, my question from from your perspective. Absolutely, yeah. Now it's 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 not even it's it's not something I've ever even heard before, which is why I find it okay. very interesting. All right. Um, I just had 
uh, one final question around the book. Um, as you mentioned, Louis, you, the, the book ends in 1965 and you have the, the, the Vietnam War. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about how, you know, America was kind of opening up after the, the after World War Two and their, their involvement in, you know, American in like European politics and, um, you know, uh, helping the financial matters of, of Europe and Japan and uh, international monetary fund and all, all that kind of thing. Do, do you think America was fundamentally different in 1965 compared to what it was in 1945? And, and, and if so, what do you think the reasons for that would be? Uh, in 1960, 1945, you know, for the next five or 10 years, the United States government, um, well, I think widely regarded as a benevolent power, because the United States had enormous economic and military strength. And it did reach out to the rest of the world, partly for Cold War reasons, to attempt to restore the depleted economies of places like Western Europe and Japan in order to promote liberal democracy. Uh, and on the whole, I think it was a good thing that we did that because I think international engagement is important for lots of reasons. And one of them is cultural. It just makes for a more vibrant and creative cultural period. Um, so that's a big part of what you see here. But the United States was not regarded as a particularly important cultural center. We talked about how people thought that was Paris, not the United States, not New York. By 1965, it's, that's flipped. So the United States, after it gets involved in the Vietnam War, has burned through the political capital that it accumulated by leading the fight against fascism and rebuilding Western Europe and Japan, but it has gained cultural capital because now it's regarded as an important player, even if just financially, in world art and literature. Um, and that's sort of the trade-off that happens in this relatively brief period of time. So it's a different country after 1965. It's lost some credibility politically. It's regarded as an imperialist power, as a racist, power because of what it did in Southeast Asia, but it's gained respect um, in the cultural world that it didn't really have 20 years before. Um, is there anything else we'd like to ask either of Alex or Louis while we've got them here? Or, Did um... you ask Louis about um, how these individual stories and, um, and biographies help the reader to sort of understand the, the period of of history in, in in reference to um his, his current a reference to the structure yeah so, so um what one thing which I, I believe you you know with the metaphysical love you had sort of many biographies and yeah. with, with this as well you've kind of got individual individual um stories being told um how did you decide that this was the the right approach to go about in particular your your new book that this structure was the, the way to go about getting to the heart of it. And I, th I think you've said before about telling the stories on the ground off yeah. of the culture. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's a very conscious choice uh, methodologically. Um, I think a lot of intellectual history is books talking to books. 
there's very little biography usually. Um, so somebody writes a book, somebody else writes another book that's talking mm -hmm. to the first book and so on. It's like a chain of paper dolls. I don't think that's the way culture happens. The culture happens in a much more kind of unpredictable, serendipitous, kind of random way. And a lot of people read other books incorrectly. <laughs> so there's a lot of misprision that, you know, is part of how culture changes. Um, so if you just look at the works, you're, you're missing a lot, a big part of the story. The way I think about it is that, let's just take Elvis Presley, for example. There's an individual comes along who has particular talent. Elvis was just a great vocal artist. Whatever else you want to say about him, he was incredibly talented. And he comes along at a moment when the American music industry is in transition from an industry that's kind of was dominated by the by the major record companies in the 1930s and 1940s, which is breaking open with the rise of independent radio stations, with the dissemination of new ways of distributing music like jukeboxes, car radios, and so on, transistor radios, cheap stereo equipment, um, and with the rise of interest in a particular subgenre of popular music called rhythm and blues, uh, which is generally marketed to black listeners. But the rise of all these distribution systems like jukeboxes and radio make that music accessible to white listeners. Because you don't know the race of the person when you're listening to the radio, you don't care about it. And that creates a white demand for the same kind of music. At that very moment, Elvis Presley walks into a recording studio in Memphis and tries to make a record. And the record he makes completely inadvertently, because he had no intention of recording, it was a rhythm and blues song called That's All Right Mama. It becomes a hit for him, a local hit. That's the beginning of Elvis's career. So, so I would say that there's a set of conditions, social conditions, let's call them, that make for the possibility of a certain kind of art. And then an individual has to come along and produce that art. So the individual's opportunity is kind of the window that's created in the social space that's constantly being transformed and the intersection between the individual and the individual's life story and the individual's particular talents and that set of conditions is what produces interesting and important and transformational art. Same thing with Jackson Pollock. Lots of people were trying to do abstract painting in the late 1940s. He just broke through in a way that nobody else could quite imitate. Nobody can make those paintings, those trip paintings. They're incredible works of art. It was by accident. He didn't have enough room in his house to hang a canvas, stretch a canvas, so he put it on the floor, stuck a stick in a can of paint and started throwing paint on it. It was like, <laughs> oh my God, this is great stuff. He kept doing it. He made this incredible body of work. It just was, he didn't think, where's the paradigm going? Oh, I put the canvas on the floor. <laughs> How can I make a painting in this stupid house? It's not big enough. So a lot of, a lot of culture changes on those kinds of sort of very serendipitous or unplanned, unpredictable uh, moments and they usually involve a particular person at a particular moment at a particular place trying something out that suddenly has this enormous transformative effect so that's what i'm trying to capture in the book and if you just look at the artwork you're not getting what made it possible and what why it meant something to people when it was produced i um i think the the group biography kind of approach is really really excellent and interesting uh, I've, I've always wondered like how somebody like Robert Caro like can spend you know 25 years thinking about LBJ alone <laughs> like, how is that even possible but um, I just this is a very broad sort of uh, maybe closing question but 
how do you as, I mean, we're all, we're writers, we're thinkers, we're scholars um, interviewing you here today. Um, how do you come up with something like the metaphysical club and then like decide what you're going to do next? Like, how did you, because this was, you spent a lot of time on this book, right? I did, um, yeah. So how did you even begin to think about what question you wanted to ask and how you wanted to do it? It was serendipitous. I mean, you know, I, the metaphysical club was kind of, was a bit of a, um, was unpredictable too, because I, you know, I, I'm an English professor. I teach literature and uh but i had i went to law school by mistake <laughs> when i got out of college and i quickly i quickly left i was there for a year but i um and i had no interest in becoming a lawyer but i was kind of interested in the history of his legal history because i'm a, a historical imagination anyway as you can tell so um this is the 1970s the 1980s there was a movement in the legal academy called critical legal studies um which is kind of precursor of critical race studies by the way um and uh the critical legal studies scholars imported a lot of post-structuralist theory into their legal analysis which scandalized traditional law professors so there was kind of a big culture war in the legal academy in the 1980s this is when i was assistant professor and I got interested in it because I was interested in the post-structuralist stuff as a legal professor, and I was a little bit interested in the legal stuff because I had some experience with law. And um, in these discussions that were going on in law journals uh, about critical legal studies, there was a mention of something called the Metaphysical Club, and I'd never heard of it. So I thought, I wonder what that's all about. And I started to do a little research on it, and I got a contract to write a book about it, and then. I suddenly realized this was a super important moment in American intellectual history. And so I wrote the book to explain that. The book has no literature in it at all. Uh, I don't think there's a single writer that I talk about it. Um, so it was a little anomalous that somebody who had no very little legal training and zero historical training was going to write a book like that. But I, I felt it was some, a story I could tell. So um, when, I when I was finishing that book, um, I taught a class, I was then teaching at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York, and I taught a class on the 60s uh, graduate course. And uh, the students seemed interested in the material. Um, we did Structural Scientific Revolutions and Feminine Mystique and Andy Warhol, and you know, I think we ended with Blindness and Insight. And so it was a mix of sort of high and low. And at the end, I said, to the students, I was thinking of writing a book on the 60s, would you be interested in that? They go like, no. <laughs> and I realized because for them, pop art is just very banal. Of course you can make a painting out of a soup can. Like, what's the big deal? Uh, yeah. And you know, the feminine mystique, they'd read Judith Butler. They didn't read, <laughs> read Betty for Dan, you know? So they knew all this stuff. They knew all this kind of postmodernist stuff already. Um, but they were interested in the 50s, they said, because they didn't understand how people, what that kind of thinking was like at all. Uh, they didn't really know much about Jackson Pollock and Clement Greenberg. So I just decided I would try to write a book about that. Um, and then I realized it was super interesting. Uh, I felt it was super interesting anyway. There's just a lot of great stories there. And that's what you're looking for when you're trying to write history. You know, what's a great story? I also felt the other thing I would say is that, of course, I grew up, I was very little, but I, you know, I have memories of that period growing up. Um, and I think 
you know, most people my age do have memories about the period and they have ideas about what it was all about. And I felt that I couldn't really write a book about it until it was sufficiently dead that you could have some distance from it. Um, so by the time I wrote the book, I felt pretty distant from that part of my life. And I felt I could sort of look back on it with some degree of disinterestedness. I don't think I could have done that 20 years before. I was uh, reading one review of the book and um, it was a very, very glowing review, but it did ask the question of, uh, was this kind of, for baby boomers, was this a final confirmation that the 20th century is truly over? I don't know if you've got any any thoughts on the, on that question. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe hard to interpret. Right. Okay. Is there any questions uh, left for Louis while we have them or shall we, we close up there? Right. Well, if we've got nothing else to, to ask, Louis, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Alex, for coming along. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you Alex, thank you again for joining us. I greatly appreciate you having your, your involvement here today. Uh, uh, same with Louis. Um, right. Um, we'll have a, another episode for you in the near future. Uh, until then, um, take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.